a friend who is a pastor in another city shared this blog that he, blog that he found and posted online. It was entitled simply, Letter of Resignation. And it read, I'm done, finished, completely spent. I'm tired of trying to earn my way into the church and the Christian subculture. Salvation may be free, but trying to win your approval has cost me my heart. If the church would be honest that their congregations and even their own pastors struggle with depression, anger, divorce, and greed, people could accept that and, and may even want to join. You are arming them with a spoon when their entire lives are a gunfight. I want to believe in Christ and follow those principles. He, he modeled in his life, nothing more, nothing less. Like Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So consider this my letter of resignation from the fraternity of Christians. I just want to walk with Jesus. You know, I'm fully aware that there are many who feel that way. And it actually seems like an increasing number do, who are really wondering, is the church really necessary? So in these opening weeks of this year, and, and the opening weeks of our time in this place, we're considering this question together. What are we doing here? You know, it's interesting, the book of Hebrews gives some very clear guidance on this, and this is what we read in the book of Hebrews. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10 and verse 24, this is what we read. And, and friends, remember, this is the word of God. And it says here, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And, and so we ask today, so why is that critical? Or, or, or was this just kind of a cultural guidance for that ancient time? If you were with us last weekend, you may recall that as we began this teaching series, we noted that our mission as, as a local church, really it's the mission given to us by Jesus, is simply to lead as many as possible to passionately follow Jesus. And really to lead others to experience the transformation, the new life in Jesus Christ. And actually, if you weren't here with us last weekend or in prior weekends, I'd so encourage you to, to watch that teaching or listen to it on our website at southviewchurch.com if that would be of help to you. But, but let me just put that mission in other words. Our mission, we could also say, is, is to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus. Because we're really all about making disciples, passionately following Jesus. Okay, so, so we ask this. So what is needed then for us to move in that direction? If that's Jesus calling us, how, how do we go along that pathway? And really one answer to that is a symbol that we have here at South Hue that you may have seen uh, around this place that really summarizes how we move in that mission. Now you might want to answer how. How does that express where we want to head? Well, when you look at Scripture, we see that Jesus' life, his, his ministry, his discipleship, it was all really founded upon three fundamental relationships, kind of three areas of calling in his life. 
And, and so we believe that each one of us is to, to walk in health and obedience as we follow Jesus really needs to cultivate, to nurture these three relationships, these three areas of calling in our life. And here at Southview, just to kind of keep it simple and hopefully make it memorable, we, we just call those three relationships up, in, out. Memorable, right? Can you say those three, three words with me? Up, in, out. Now, through this series, and specifically this weekend and next, we're going to look at that first relationship or calling, up. And in our symbol, that's represented by the cross right at the center, which reminds us the heart of what we're about is Jesus. The God we worship, he is the center of all this. And so we ask, so again, what are we doing here? Now, I think one of the clearest responses to that question of, of what we're supposed to be doing here, it's actually laid out in the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament. But I want to tell you that, that those New Testament texts, they, they use some really loaded, just packed with historical meaning terminology. So before we actually get to those texts that we're going to look at today in the New Testament, I'd, I'd, I'd like to lay out some kind of historical context, some color from the Old Testament before we come to our New Testament teaching, okay? Because I, I think it will help us understand even more fully the beauty of what's declared in Paul's letters. That makes sense? So I, I know this. I, I know that if I'm going to lose your attention today, if I haven't already, I, I'm going to lose it in the next 10 minutes of teaching. So as we walk through this historical context, so can I encourage you, work to stay with me, all right? As if we don't have to other weeks, right? I know. Okay, so in this, because I think this will deeply enrich in our understanding of, of this New Testament passage we're going to come to in time. All right. So again, the question, what are we doing here? Okay, look. Well, first, a kind of a 10-minute overview of, of the Old Testament, all right? The Old Testament, really, the story of Scripture in, in 10 minutes, essentially. Just an overview of it. And to do that, let's start at the very beginning. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, which I know makes you tremble because there are so many books to get through. But let's look at this. In Genesis, if you know this, Genesis chapter 11 to 50, it, it is about God making himself known to a man named Abraham and his descendants. There were four individuals in particular in, in these chapters of 11 to 50 in Genesis. There is first Abraham, then his son Isaac, then his son Jacob, then his son Joseph. Those four individuals. And now understand this. Remember that for generations before Abraham, as far as we know, people really didn't know God that well. Even within Abraham's own family in his home at that time. So, so really at this time, Abraham and his family were kind of it, just beginning to learn of and walk with this God, Yahweh. So understand, God was moving. He was revealing himself, but really primarily to one family. That's what we read here. Now, if you remember how the story unfolds, now Joseph and his father Jacob and, and Joseph's brothers, they eventually head down to Egypt to, to survive a famine that was taking place in Israel. But they wind up, as you may know, enslaved by Egypt for centuries, during which the, the people of Israel apparently hear little or learn little of God until Moses. 
Moses. Because then after centuries, think of this, after centuries of comparative silence, God delivers this people of Israel and they, they exodus to freedom. And God now displays his presence to all of them collectively. Remember, as they were journeying in the exodus, during the day, how did God display his presence? It was by a great cloud that went before them. And at night, this pillar of fire. So again, remember, this is kind of intriguing. This was the first time in the story of Scripture that God was displaying his presence to an entire people in this kind of way. Up to that point, it just really had been to individuals or families. So here are the people of Israel. They are journeying into freedom, and they come with Moses leading them to Mount Sinai, right? And there they are at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and what do the people see? This is what we read in Exodus. Exodus 24, and verse 15, it says this. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Imagine, verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So the people there, there there we are, like with the people, we see God's presence, his glory, up there, right, with Moses. Now, I brought along a picture. This is Jebel Musa, it's called, in Egypt. It's likely Mount Sinai of Scripture. St. Catherine's Monastery is built right around there. So this would be the place like it, or perhaps the place itself, where this would have all taken place that we read of here. And, and so this is what we know. We know, Scripture makes it clear, that our God is and was omnipresent. Meaning, meaning our God is spirit, so he is present in all places, right? But he was uniquely expressing his presence right up there on Mount Sinai. So let's be the people of Israel. We're down here. We are looking up there and saying that's where God is. He's up there, far away from us. But understand this, as Moses was up there, up there in the presence of God, there was a profound shift taking place in God's activity. This is what we read in chapter 25, verse 8 of Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, let them, the people of Israel, let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now understand at this time that that kind of idea was so other than most religions of that day. The gods of that day were just viewed as being so distant, kind of up in the heavens, just apathetic about humanity. So, so this declaration of God was declared powerfully that the one true God desired fellowship or relationship with his people. So they built this sanctuary. It was called a tabernacle for God. And, and the tabernacle, really what it was, was just kind of big mobile tent. That, that's what it would have looked like in that sense. That would be the place where God would dwell. Now, this was a reproduction made by some individual out in the Middle East uh, from the biblical guidelines. So the tabernacle in Moses' time would have looked something like this, except it wouldn't have had the electrical posts right out front, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) But here are the elements of it. There would have been the courts as the people would gather there, and, and then there would have been the holy place, which was the tent itself. And then the very back quadrant of that tent was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place where God particularly would bring his presence to dwell. So wherever the people traveled, they packed this up, brought it with them, and this was like a tent of meaning. Now listen, this is how it's described in Exodus 33. Try try to picture this scene. Verse 9. 
when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Why would they worship? Yeah, God was right there with them. God was right there. Just this unknown intimacy with God, the, the God who is present. Got that scene? Okay, now let's fast forward about four centuries. Okay, the tabernacle at this time is gone. Israel now has dwelled for centuries, for generations in the promised land. King David had come. He was ruling in Jerusalem. And David wants to build like a, a permanent tabernacle for God in Jerusalem. A, a temple, really. So the people of Israel could know and experience God's presence the way they had in the days of Moses. So David gives his own supplies for this temple. It, it said that he gave some around 118 tons of his own gold, about 200 tons of silver. Imagine that, towards the temple. But it was his son Solomon who actually built this temple. And then this is how it's described. We read this in, in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 6, this is a description, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. And, and so God said to Solomon... Concerning this house that you are building, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people of Israel. And, and then listen to Solomon's prayer in response. Almost, it's almost beyond his comprehension that God would dwell in their midst. This is what we read in chapter 8, verse 26. And Solomon prayed, Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the, the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that we built? How, how in the world can you dwell within this house? And, and so in response to that question, if they ask the question, they, so why a temple? It was because the God who is omnipresent, who is in all places, would be uniquely present here. This would be the place where God will dwell, where he will live. God's home will be right here among the people. Here's an artist's depiction of what Solomon's temple looked like in, in that day. Again, it was just a really blown up tabernacle. Same elements, there would have been the courts there like there were with a smaller tabernacle as the people came to gather. And then the high tower in the back, that would have been the holy place. Only the priests could go in there. And the very back portion of that was the most holy place, the holy of holies, separated by a curtain. Only the high priest could go in there on one day of the year, the day of atonement. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where God uniquely dwelt. There was the Ark of the Covenant in there, if you remember that. Remember from Indiana Jones? You got it. He wasn't the creator of it. Something else. But that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. On top of that Ark, it was called the Bema Seat, the Mercy Seat. Right there was where God brought his presence to dwell uniquely among his people. Right there in this incredible scene as they gathered together. And, and so if you ask the people of Israel, where's God? You know what they'd say? Right over there. That, that's where he lives. So again, in this gathering, a stunning reality. God dwelling amongst them. And listen to this. This is after the temple was completed by Solomon, when the temple is finally being dedicated. Listen to this description. 1 Kings 8.10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Imagine that. 
Imagine us on some weekend having to stop our worship services, not because there's some static on the mic, because the glory of God so fills this place, the cloud of his presence, we have to pause and stop. So imagine the people of Israel experiencing this. What historic memories would have come to mind for them as they paused their worship because the cloud was here? Moses, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the, the presence of God, all of this linked together as they stood at the temple. The cloud was here. So, so for the people of Israel, then their, their experience of their understanding of their, their reverence towards the temple was this. <laughs> The the longing for and reality of God dwelling, God present right in the middle of them. But let's understand this. Neither the temple nor the tabernacle were really an end in themselves. Friends, those things were, were both just foreshadowings of something yet to come. Because let's fast forward from David and Solomon's time. Fast forward another thousand years to to 2,000 years ago in our time frame. 2,000 years ago in a little village in Bethlehem, a pillar of cloud or fire doesn't descend. But rather what happens? A baby's born in a barn stall. And who had the prophet Isaiah said this child would be? Emmanuel. He'll, He'll be God dwelling right with us, God with us. And and so God comes, not in the form of a cloud, but in flesh and blood, vulnerable, in in, in our skin, walking and speaking. I mean, God was here. So this is what we read in the Gospel of John. John then says these words of power, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh, and what did it do? Dwelt among us. That word dwelt there, it it means to tabernacle, literally. It means to set up camp. It means to, to pitch your tent right in our presence. God is here. So when Jesus' disciples then began to understand that Jesus truly was Emmanuel, he was God with us, and then they saw him lift up the cross to die, it made no sense to them. That's why they were hopeless. It didn't make sense. But what they didn't know at that moment was at that moment when Jesus was breathing his last breath, there was something also happening right across Jerusalem in the temple. Because as Jesus breathed his last, that curtain that separated everyone from the holy of holies in the temple was torn from the top to bottom. Signifying, really declaring, the door is now wide open to God through Jesus. And and not just that, but God is moving out from that place to us. He's here. And then Easter morning and the resurrection and then the disciples gathering again. Oh, Jesus, God is right here with us again. Then they go out on a day trip with him, and he ascends to heaven. (laughs) And they're left looking up again. Until Pentecost. Okay, that's our salvation history, all right? That's our historical background. And so I just want to congratulate it. Well done, you made it. So, so, okay, we bring all that, and let's come back to our question then. So, So what are we doing here? Okay, I, I want us to bring all that salvation history we just went through to the New Testament text we're going to look at now. And it's in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you know what's going on in this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth here where the people in this church, they were, they were getting drunk at communion with the wine that was there. They were celebrating a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. They were suing each other in the courts among many other things. So in order to correct 
kind of their messed up behavior, to what foundational truth does Paul lead them back? He reminds them, friends, not of a set of rules or laws that they've been breaking. No, what he does, he reminds them of their new identity in Christ is what he does. Because they'd forgotten who they were in Jesus. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. In fact, let's read this together. Read it with me. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You are that temple, Paul says. Now, I want you to notice two things in this passage that are critical again. The, the word temple that is used several times in there, the Apostle Paul could have actually used many different Greek words that were written in the original writings of this. One of the Greek words he could have written down when he used temple was hieron. Now, hieron is a word we translate as temple, but it referred to the temple in its entirety. All of the outside courts and inner courts, all of it. That's not what Paul used here. That word temple that Paul uses here is a Greek word, naos. Naos. You want to say that word with me? Naos. What that referred to specifically was the most holy place. The holy of holies. Naos. That's what Paul is referring to there. Not just the temple in its entirety. You are the holy of holies. Added to that, when we go back and look at the word you that Paul used several times in this passage, understand this, that word you is in the plural form. He's not just speaking to individual Christians here as he writes this, but rather he's speaking to followers of Christ collectively. He's speaking to the collective gathering of Christians. In other words, he's speaking to the church, to, to, to the new temple. And so friends, he's saying to us collectively, you are now the holy of holies where the spirit of God dwells. And, and so we try to make sense of that and understand. And remember this, it's cru critical to remember this. The church is not a building, is it? So, someone say more loudly, no. Okay, the church is what? Us, it, it's the people. The church is the people. That's who Paul is speaking to. So we understand this from Paul's words that it repeats many times. The unique place of God's presence, his dwelling is right in the middle of the church, his people, gathered together. The church is the temple, the holy of holies of God. Paul expresses it again, just one of the other places in 2 Corinthians 6. Looks what he write, writes there, verse 16. For we are the temple. Again, the word he uses there, the Greek word is naos. We are the holy of holies of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul writing to the church, friends. Not just to individual Christ followers, but to the church collectively. In fact, he says it to the church in Ephesus in, in similar words. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. In Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, you also, church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so understand this. When the Apostle Paul, being prompted by the Holy Spirit, uses that phrase, the temple of the Holy Spirit, realize this. All of the biblical history surrounding that term 
God dwelling among his people, the glory of God being expressed, the, the people worshiping with joy, the holy of holies, all of that history is brought into that phrase. Is that not an astounding reality? And then Paul in Ephesians 3, just in exuberance over the reality of this truth, that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, listen to what he writes, Ephesians 3.10. God's intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, drink that in for a second. Then let's ask again. So friends, what are we doing here? And I want us to realize this. The foundational response to that question is not some task we've been given. That's not primarily what we're doing here. But rather our foundational response is the wonder of our new identity. Because understand this, the church is not just kind of another religious organization that, that's seeking to pr promote particular beliefs. Nor is the church merely kind of a, a community institution that benefiting the fabric of society. Nor is the church primarily a social service or a self-help group kind of meeting the felt needs of her neighbors. All of those things can be in our good. But, but that limited perspective could not be more foreign to Scripture's view of the church, of the body of Christ. So let's understand this. As we move in this year, we are foundationally the temple of the triune God, a people among whom the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is uniquely present. And so that's why when we put our symbol up, Right at the heart of that symbol is the cross. It is Christ reminding us that the heart of what we're about and how we live is him. <laughs> and I know it doesn't always feel like this is reality. I know it. But the body of Christ is a place where Jesus Christ is matchlessly present. In our ministry, in our gathering, when we receive communion, as he's present with us in this, when we come to his word, he's present with us. So we need to be clear. What are we doing here? We, we are receiving from and offering to others, Jesus. It's all about him. And friends, understand that reality, it, it transforms everything in the way we live. It should. Think about this. Our worldview then, it, it transformed that because it then makes us realize we live and minister in spiritual realities. And, and so Paul would write in Ephesians 6, do you remember his words? He, he'd say to the church, understand this, we're not battling just against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers and authorities of this present darkness. Not just our world, but our worship. Let, let, let's understand this. Even as we gather worship, we don't sing songs when we gather just kind of to fill 20 or 25 minutes. We are actually singing songs of praise, of prayer to the God who is present with us. He is listening. He's receiving our worship. It, it transforms our ministry, friends. As we realize, as we minister, even in our inadequacy, the Holy Spirit is at work. That's why Paul would say, remember Church of Corinth, when I came to you, I, I, I taught you as best as I could, but I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. It was with an evidence of the Spirit's power. That, that's how I came and served with you. And friends, this reality, it should transform our unity. Because if this is true, if we are a people among whom the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells uniquely, 
How then could we ever be involved in kind of petty bickering, backbiting, divisiveness, right? Again, all of it, it comes back to our identity through faith in Jesus. That's why Paul would write again to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. to, To which you have been called. You know what Paul's saying there? Church, live in line with who you are. Realize who you are. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, really quickly then as we close. So do we then, as a church, do we need to do anything to to cooperate with the presence of Christ in the Spirit? Absolutely. Remember Paul's words that later in Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18, he said to the church, don't get drunk with wine, that leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with what? Be filled with the Spirit. Okay, let's consider this. He's writing this to followers of Jesus, right? Which means then, that, that you can be an authentic follower of Jesus. You can have a desire to be following, having your faith in Jesus. And you can yet not be walking in the power of the Spirit, right? That, that's what he's saying to the church. You, you need to be filled with the Spirit. So, so we ask the question, how then are we filled with the Spirit? That should take many more messages to answer. Let, let me just give you two elements that are part of this. This isn't a formula, but these are things we come to. For one, how are we filled with the Spirit? For one, we ask, Right? We, we call out to God and say, Father, would you fill me, lead me to be filled with your spirit. It's, it's not a formula, but it's a step in, in asking his fullness. And, and secondly, we ask it, and then we follow Jesus in obedience. And I, I just ask you, I prompt you with this as we start this year. Is there any area in my life where I am saying, okay, my faith is in you, Jesus. But I'm going to ignore your guidance about my, what would it be? Finances? Relationships? Sexuality? Marriage? What is truly your receptivity level to the Spirit's guidance of you? So friends, what if we start living this way? What then would be the most prominent evidence of us living by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells among us? What would that look like? I think that's a really good question. What would be like the first fruit? I'll tell you what it's not. It wouldn't be a cloud descending. We would take that though, right? I wouldn't argue with that. I'd be fine with it. We have machines that can create clouds. We could do that. No, that's, that's not what God's word says. It says, in fact, Jesus himself said, you, you know what the first fruit will be? This is how they're gonna know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. It will be love, the spirit molding us in love. Next weekend, we're gonna to come to this topic, this relationship of up, and then on in coming weeks to in and out. But I wanna prompt us, even as we close in prayer, to respond to how God might be prompting you this morning. So we bow your heads as we pray. And, and before I pray, uh, in, in silence, you, you might want to pray. Father, would you fill me with your spirit? If I'm quenching your spirit's work in my life, would you, would you show me where I'm resistant? Teach me. Oh, and Father, these realities we're looking at in your word are 
they really are beyond our understanding in so many ways. And, and so I pray by your grace through the work of your spirit who's present among us, would you lead us to understand this incredible identity we have and the wonder of the reality that as we gather like this, you're dwelling, you're tabernacled right here with us. Lead us in that pathway, Father. And as we move out into the squeak, we pray we would walk in that grace by the power of your spirit. So guide us, we pray, for the sake of your honor and glory and your son's name. And all God's people again say, amen. Will you stand with me, friends?